Chapter Six of Demos: A Story of English Socialism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Farheen. Demos: A Story of English Socialism by George Gissing. Chapter Six. At eleven o'clock the next morning, Richard presented himself at the door of a house in Avenue Road, St. John's Wood, and expressed a desire to see Mr. Westlake. That gentleman was at home. He received the visitor in his study, a spacious room luxuriously furnished, with a large window looking upon a lawn. The day was sunny and warm, but a clear fire equalized the temperature of the room. There was an odour of good tobacco, always most delightful when it blends with a scent of rich bindings. It was Richard's first visit to this house. A few days ago he would, in spite of himself, have been somewhat awed by the manservant at the door, the furniture of the hall, the air of refinement in the room he entered. At present he smiled on everything. Could he not command the same as soon as he chose? Mr. Westlake rose from his writing-table and greeted his visitor with a hearty grip of the hand. He was a man pleasant to look upon. His face, full of intellect, shone with the light of goodwill, and the easy carelessness of his attire prepared one for the genial sincerity which marked his way of speaking. He wore a velvet jacket, a grey waistcoat buttoning up to the throat, grey trousers, fur-bordered slippers. His collar was very deep and instead of the ordinary shirt cuffs his wrists were enclosed in frills long-haired full-bearded he had the forehead of an idealist and eyes whose natural expression was an indulgent smile a man of letters he had struggled from obscure poverty to success and ample means at three-and-thirty he was still hard-pressed to make both ends meet but the ten subsequent years had built for him this pleasant home and banished his long familiar anxieties to the land of nightmare it came just in time he was in the habit of saying to those who had his confidence i was at the point where a man begins to turn sour and i should have sought in earnest the process had been most effectually arrested People were occasionally found to say that his books had a tang of acerbity. Possibly this was the safety valve at work, a hint of what might have come had the old hunger demons kept up their goading. In the man himself you discovered an extreme simplicity of feeling, a frank tenderness, a noble indignation. For one who knew him, it was not difficult to understand that he should have taken up extreme social views, still less that he should act upon his convictions all his writing foretold such a possibility though on the other hand it exhibited devotion to forms of culture which do not as a rule predispose to democratic agitation the explanation was perhaps too simple to be readily hit upon the man was himself so supremely happy that with his disposition the thought of tyrannous injustice grew intolerable to him some incidents happened to set his wrath blazing 
and henceforth in spite of not a little popular ridicule and much shaking of the head among his friends mr westlake had his mission i have come to ask your advice and help began mutimer with directness he was conscious of the necessity of subduing his voice and had a certain pleasure in the ease with which he achieved this feat it would not have been so easy a day or two ago ah about this awkward affair of yours observed mr westlake with reference to richard's loss of employment of which as editor of the union's weekly paper he had of course at once been apprised no not about that since then a very unexpected thing has happened to me the story was once more related vastly to mr westlake's satisfaction cheerful news concerning his friends always put him in the best of spirits he shook his head laughing come come mutimer this'll never do i'm not sure that we shall not have to consider your expulsion from the union richard went on to mention the matters of legal routine in which he hoped mr westlake would serve him these having been settled i wish to speak of something more important he said you take it for granted i hope that i am not going to make the ordinary use of this fortune as yet i have only been able to hit on a few general ideas i am clear as to the objects i shall keep before me but how best to serve them wants more reflection i thought if i talked it over with you in the first place the door opened and a lady half entered the room oh i thought you were alone she remarked to mr westlake forgive me come in here's our friend mutimer you know mrs westlake a few words had passed between this lady and richard in the lecture room a few weeks before she was not frequently present at such meetings but had chanced on the occasion referred to to hear mutimer deliver an harangue you have no objection to talk of your plans join a council will you he added to his wife our friend brings interesting news mrs westlake walked across the room to the curved window seat her age could scarcely be more than three or four and twenty she was very dark and her face grave almost to melancholy black hair cut short at its thickest behind her neck gave exquisite relief to features of the purest greek type in listening to anything that held her attention her eyes grew large and their dark orbs seemed to dream passionately the white swan's down at her throat was perfectly attired made the skin above resemble rich hued marble and indeed to gaze at her long was to be impressed as by the sad loveliness of a supreme work of art as mutimer talked she leaned forward her elbow on her knee the back of her hand supporting her chin her husband recounted what richard had told him and the latter proceeded to sketch the projects he had in view my idea is he said to make the mines at monley the basis of great industrial undertakings just as any capitalist might but to conduct these undertakings in a way consistent with our views i would begin by building furnaces and in time add engineering works on a large scale i would build houses for the men 
and in fact make the valley an industrial settlement conducted on socialist principles practically i can devote the whole of my income my personal expenses will not be worth taking into account the men must be paid on a just scheme and the margin of profit that remains all that we can spare from the extension of the works shall be devoted to the socialist propaganda in fact i should like to make the executive committee of the union a sort of board of directors and in a very different sense from the usual for the wonly estate my personal expenditure deducted i should like such a committee to have the practical control of funds all this wealth was made by plunder of the laboring class and i shall hold it as trustee for them do these ideas seem to you of a practical color mr westlake nodded slowly twice his wife kept her listening attitude unchanged her eyes dreamed against a distant goal as i see the scheme pursued richard who spoke all along somewhat in the lecture room tone the result of a certain embarrassment it will differ considerably from the socialist experiments we know of we shall be working not only to support ourselves but every bit as much set on profit as any capitalist in berwick the difference is the profit will benefit no individual but the cause there'll be no attempt to carry out the idea of every man receiving the just outcome of his labor not because i shouldn't be willing to share in that way but simply because we have a greater end in view than to enrich ourselves our men must all be members of the union and their prime interest must be the advancement of the principles of the union we shall be able to establish new papers to hire halls and to spread ourselves over the country it'll be fighting the capitalist manufacturers with their own weapons i can see plenty of difficulties of course all england will be against us never mind we'll defy them all and we'll win it'll be the work of my life and we'll see if an honest purpose can go as far as a thievish one the climax would have brought crashing cheers at commonwealth hall in mr westlake's study it was received with well-bred expressions of approval well mutimer explained the idealist all this is intensely interesting and right glorious for us one sees at last a possibility of faction i ask nothing better than to be allowed to work with you it happens very luckily that you are a practical engineer i suppose the mechanical details of the undertaking are entirely within your province not quite at present mutimer admitted but i shall have valuable help yesterday i had a meeting with a man named rodman a mining engineer who has been working on the estate he seems just the man i shall want a socialist already and delighted to join in the plans i just hinted to him capital do you propose then that we shall call a special meeting of the committee or would you prefer to suggest a committee of your own no i think our own committee will do very well at all events for the present the first thing of course is to get the financial details of a scheme put into shape i go to belwick again this afternoon my solicitor must get his business through as soon as possible you will reside for the most part at wonley at the manor yes it is occupied just now but i suppose will soon be free 
Do you know that part of the country, Stella? Mr. Westlake asked of his wife. She roused herself, drawing in her breath, and uttered a short negative. As soon as I get into the house, Richard resumed to Mr. Westlake, I hope you'll come and examine the place. It's unfortunate that the railway misses it by about three miles, but Rodman tells me we can easily run a private line to Agworth Station. However, the first thing is to get our committee at work on the scheme. Richard repeated this phrase with gusto. Perhaps you could bring it up at the Saturday meeting. You'll be in town on Saturday? Yes, I have a lecture in Arlington on Sunday. Saturday will do then. Is this confidential? Not at all. We may as well get as much encouragement out of it as we can. Don't you think so? Certainly. Richard did not give expression to his thought that a paragraph on the subject in Union's weekly organ, the Fury Cross, might be the best way of promoting such encouragement. But he delayed his departure for a few minutes with talk round about the question of the prudence which must necessarily be observed in publishing a project so undigested. Mr. Westlake, who was responsible for the paper, was not likely to transgress the limits of good taste and when richard on saturday morning searched eagerly the columns of the cross he was not altogether satisfied with the extreme discretion which marked a brief paragraph among those headed from day to day however many of the readers were probably by that time able to supply the missing proper name it was not the fault of Daniel Dabbs if members of the Hoxton and Islington branch of the Union read the paragraph without understanding to whom it referred. Daniel was among the first to hear of what had befallen the Mutimer family, and from the circle of his fellow workmen the news spread quickly. Talk was rife on the subject of Mutimer's dismissal from Wrongwood Brothers, and the sensational rumour which followed so quickly found an atmosphere well prepared for its transmission. Hence the unusual concourse at the meeting place in Islington next Sunday evening, where, as it became known to others besides socialists, Mutimer was engaged to lecture. Richard experienced some vexation that his lecture was not to be at Commonwealth Hall, where the gathering would doubtless have been much larger. The union was not wealthy. The central hall was rented at Mr. Westlake's expense. Two or three branches were managing with difficulty to support regular places of assembly, such as could not be obliged as yet to content themselves with open-air lecturing. In Islington, the leagues met in a room behind a coffee shop, ordinarily used for festive purposes. Benches were laid across the floor, and an estrade at the upper end exalted chairman and lecturer. The walls were adorned with more or less striking advertisements of non-alcoholic beverages, and with a few prints from the illustrated papers. The atmosphere was tobacco-y, and the coffee shop itself, through which the visitors had to make their way, suggested to the nostrils that bloaters are the working man's chosen delicacy at Sunday tea. A table just within the door of the lecture room exposed for sale sundry socialist publications, the latest issue of the Fury Cross in particular. Richard was wont to be among the earliest arrivals. Tonight he was full ten minutes behind the hour for which the lecture was advertised. A group of friends were standing about the table near the door. They received him with a bustle which turned all eyes thitherwards. 
he walked up the middle of the room to the platform as soon as he was well in the eye of the meeting a single pair of hands daniel dabbs owned them gave the signal for uproar feet made play on the boarding and one or two of the more enthusiastic revolutionists fairly gave tongue richard seated himself with grave countenance and surveyed the assembly from fifty to sixty people were present among them three or four women and the number continued to grow the chairman and one or two leading spirits had followed mutimer to the place of distinction where they talked with him punctuality was not much regarded at these meetings the lecture was announced for eight but rarely began before half-past the present being an occasion of exceptional interest twenty minutes past the hour saw the chairman rise for his prefatory remarks he was a lank man of jovial countenance and jerky enunciation there was no need he observed to introduce a friend and comrade so well known to them as the lecturer of the evening we're always glad to hear him and to-night if i may be allowed int as much we're particularly glad to hear him our friend and comrade is going to talk to us about the land it's a question we can't talk or think too much about and comrade mutimer has thought about it as much and more than any of us i think i may say i don't know the chairman added with a sly look across the room whether our friends got any new views on this subject of late i shouldn't wonder if he had here sounded a roar of laughter led off by daniel dabbs how's evers be that as it may we can answer for it as any views he may hold is the right views and the honest views and the views of a man as means to do a good deal more than talk about his convictions again did the stenner note of daniel ring forth and it was amid thunderous cheering that richard left his chair and moved to the front of the platform his sunday suit of black was still that with which his friends were familiar but his manner though the audience probably did not perceive the detail was unmistakably changed he had been wont to begin his address with short stinging periods with sneers and such bitterness of irony as came within his compass to-night he struck quite another key mellow confident hinting at personal satisfaction a smile was on his lips and not a smile of scorn he rested one hand against his side holding in the other a scrap of paper with jotted items of reasoning his head was thrown a little back he viewed the benches from beneath his eyelids true the pose maintained itself but for a moment i mention it because it was something new in richard he spoke of the land he attacked the old monopoly and visioned a time when a claim to individual ownerships of the earth's surface would be as ludicrous as were now the assertion of title to a fee simple somewhere in the moon he mustered statistics he adduced historic and contemporary example of the just and the unjust in land holding he gripped the throat of a certain english duke and helped him up for flagellation he drifted into oceans of economic theory 
he sat down by the waters of babylon he climbed pisgah had he but spoken of backslidings in the wilderness but for that fatal omission the lecture was of its kind good by degrees richard forgot his pose and the carefully struck note of mellowness he began to believe what he was saying and to say it with the right vigour of popular oratory forget his struggles with the h fiend forget his syntactical lapses you saw that after all the man had within him a clear flame of conscience that he had felt before speaking that speech was one of the uses for which nature had expressly framed him his invective seldom degenerated into vulgar abuse one discerned in him at least the elements of what we call good taste of simple manliness he disclosed not a little he had some command of pathos in conclusion he finished without reference to his personal concerns the chairman invited questions preliminary to debate he rose halfway down the room the man who invariably rises on these occasions he was oldish with bent shoulders and wore spectacles probably a clerk of 40 years standing in his hand was a small notebook which he consulted he began with measured utterance emphatic loud i wish to propose to the lecture seven questions i will read them in order i have taken some pains to word them clearly richard had a scrap of paper on his knee he jots a word or two after each deliberate interrogation smiling the other questioners succeeded richard replies to them he faced to satisfy the man of seven queries who after repeating this and the other of the seven professes himself still unsatisfied shakes his head indulgently walks from the room the debate is opened behold a second inevitable man he is not well washed his shirt front shows a beer stain he is angry before he begins i don't know whether a man as doesn't old with these kind of theories will be allowed a fair hearing indignant interruption cries of of course he will who ever refused to hear you and the like he is that singular phenomena that self contradiction that expression insoluble into factors of common sense the conservative working man what do they want to be at he demands do they suppose as this kind of toggle make wages higher enable the poor man to get his beef and beer at a lower rate what's the good of it all figures oh he never heard yet as figures made a meal for a man as hadn't got one nor yet as they provided shoes and stockings for his young uns at home it made him mad to listen that it did do they suppose as the rich man'll give up the land if they talk till all's blue wasn't it human nature to get all you can and stick to it begs nature cries someone from the front benches there comes a rejoinder didn't i say as there was no fair hearing for a man as didn't say just what suits you the voice of daniel dabbs is loud in good-tempered mockery mockery comes from every side an angry note here and there for the most part tolerant jovial let em speak 
hear him hoy hoy the chairman interposes but by the time the order is restored the conservative working man has thrust his hat upon his head and is off to the nearest public house muttering oaths mr cullen rises at the same time rises mr coes these two gentlemen are fated to rise simultaneously they scowl at each other mr cullen begins to speak and mr coes after a circular glance of protest resumes his seat the echoes tell that we are in for oratory with a vengeance mr cullen is a short stout man very seedily habited and with a great rough head of hair an aquiline nose lungs of vast power his vein is king cambyses he tears passion to tatters he roars leonine he is your man to have at the pampered jades of asia he has got hold of a new word and that the work to exploit i am exploited thou art exploited he exploits who why such men as that english duke whom the lecturer gripped and flagellated the english duke is mr cullen's bugbear never a speech from mr cullen but that duke is most horribly mauled his ground rents yeah another word of which mr cullen is fond is stratum usually spelt and pronounced with but one t midway you and i have the misfortune to belong to a social stratum which is trampled flat and hard beneath the feet of the landowners mr cullen rises to such a point of fury that one dreads the consequences to himself already the chairman is on his feet intimating in dumb show that the allowed 10 minutes have elapsed there is no making the orator here at length his friend who sits by him fairly grips his coat tails and brings him to a sitting posture amid mirthful tumult mr cullen joins in the mirth looks as though he had never been angry in his life and till next sunday comes round he will neither speak nor think of the social question mr cows is unopposed after the preceding enthusiast the voice of mr cows falls soothingly as a stream among the heather he is tall meagre bald he wears a very broad black necktie his hand soars up and down mr cows tone is the quietly venomous in a few minutes you believe in his indignation far more than in that of mr cullen he makes a point and pauses to observe the effect upon his hearers he prides himself upon his grammar goes back to correct a concord emphasizes eccentricities of pronunciation for instance he accents capitalist on the second syllable and repeats the words with grave challenge to all and sundry speaking of something which he wishes to stigmatize as a misnomer he exclaims it's what i call a misnomy and he follows the assertion with an awful suspense of utterance he brings his speech to a close exactly with the end of the 10th minute and on sitting down eyes his unknown neighbor with wrathful intensity for several moments who will follow a sound comes from the very back of the room such a sound that every head turns in astonished search for the source of it such voice has the wind in garret chimneys on a winter night it is a thin wail a prelude of lamentation 
It troubles the blood. The speaker no one seems to know. He is a man of yellow visage, with head sunk between pointed shoulders. On his crown a mare's scalp lock. He seems to be afflicted with a disease of the muscles. His malformed body quivers. The hand he raises shakes paralytic. His clothes are of the meanest. What his age may be, it is impossible to judge. As his voice gathers strength, the hearers begin to feel the influence of a terrible earnestness. He does not rant. He does not weigh his phrases. The stream of bitter prophecy flows on smooth and dark. He is supplying the omission in Mutimer's harangue, is bidding his class know itself and chasten itself as an indispensable preliminary to any great change in the order of things. He cries vanity upon all these detailed schemes of social reconstruction. Are we ready for it, he wails. Could we bear it if they granted it to us? It is all good and right, but hadn't we better first make ourselves worthy of such freedom? He begins a terrible arraignment of the people. Then, of a sudden, his voice has ceased. You could hear a pin drop. It is seen that the man has fallen to the ground. There arises a low moaning. People press about him. They carry him into the coffee shop. It was a fit. In five minutes he is restored but does not come back to finish his speech. There is an interval of disorder, but surely we are not going to let the meeting end in this way. The chairman calls for the next speaker, and he stands forth in the person of a rather smug little shopkeeper, who declares that he knows of no single particular in which the working class needs correction. The speech undeniably falls flat. Will no one restore the tone of the meeting? Mr. Kitshaw is the man. Now we shall have broad grins. Mr. Kitshaw enjoys a reputation for mimicry. He takes off music hall singers in the bar parlour of a Saturday night. Observe, he rises, hems, pulls down his waistcoat. There is bubbling laughter. Mr. Kitshaw brings back the debate to its original subject. He talks of the land. He is a little haphazard at first but presently hits the mark in a fancy picture of a country still in the hands of aborigines, as yet unannexed by the capitalist nations, knowing not the meaning of the verb exploit. Imagine such a happy land, my friends, a land, I say, which nobody hasn't ever thought of, of developing the resources of. That's the proper phrase, I believe. There are the people, with clothing enough for comfort, and, ahem, good manners but mark you no more no manufacturer of luxurious skirts and holsters and togs of that kind by the exploited classes no for no exploited classes don't exist all are equal my friends up and down the fields they goes all day long arm in arm jack and jerry i and lisa and sari ann for they have equality of the sexes mind you up and down the fields, I say, in a devil-may-care sort of way, with their sweethearts and their wives. No factory smoke, dear no. There's the rivers, with tropical plants a-shading the banks. Oh my! There they goes up and down in their boats, devil-may-care, a-strumming on the banjo. He imitated such action, and a-singing, their nigger minstrelly with light arts.
Why? Cause they ain't got no work to get up to at half past five next morning. Their time's their own. That's the condition of an unexploited country, my friends. Mr. Kitshaw had put everyone in vast good humour. You might wonder that his sweetly idyllic picture did not stir bitterness by contrast. It were to credit the English workman with too much imagination. Resonance of applause rewarded the sparkling rhetorician. A few of the audience availed themselves of the noise to withdraw, for the clock showed that it was close upon ten, and public houses shut their doors early on Sunday. But Richard Mutimer was on his feet again, and this time without regard to effect. There was a word in him strongly demanding utterance. It was to the speech of the unfortunate prophet that he desired to reply. He began with sorrowful admissions. No one speaking honestly could deny that, that the working class had its faults. They came out plainly enough now and then. Drink, for instance. Mr. Cullen gave a resounding hear, hear, and a stamp on the boards. What sort of a spectacle would be exhibited by the public houses in Hoxton and Islington at closing time tonight? True, from Mr. Cowes, who also stamped on the boards. Yes, but Richard used the device of aposiopesis. Daniel Dabbs took it for a humorous effect and began a roar, which was summarily interdicted. But, pursued Richard with emphasis, what is the meaning of these vices? What do they come of? Who's to blame for them? Not the working class. Never tell me. What drives a man to drink in his spare hours? What about the poisonous air of garrets and cellars? What about excessive toil and inability to procure healthy recreation? What about defects of education due to poverty? What about diseased bodies inherited from overslaved parents? Messrs. Cowes and Cullen had accompanied these queries with a climax of vociferous approval when Richard paused. They led the tumult of hands and heels. Look at that poor man who spoke to us, cried Mutimer. He's gone, so I shan't hurt him by speaking plainly. He spoke well, mind you, and he spoke from his heart. But what sort of life has his been, do you think? A wretched cripple? A miserable weakling, no doubt, from the day of his birth, cursed in having ever seen the daylight, and such as he is, called upon to fight for his bread. Much of it he gets. Who would blame that man if he drank himself into unconsciousness every time he picked up a sixpence? Cows and Cullen bellowed their delight. Well, he doesn't do it. So much you can be sure of. In some vile hole here in this great city of ours, he drags on a life worse, aye, a thousand times worse, than that of the horses in the West End mews. Don't clap your hands so much, fellow workers. Just think about it on your way home. Talk about it to your wives and your children. It's the sight of objects like that that makes my blood boil, and that's set me in earnest at this work of ours. I feel for that man, and all like him, as if they were my brothers, and I take you all to witness, all you present and all you repeat my words to, that I'll work on as long as I have life in me, 
that I'll use every opportunity that's given to me to uphold the cause of the poor and downtrodden against the rich and selfish and luxurious, that, if I live another fifty years, I shall still be of the people and with the people, that no man shall ever have it in his power to say that Richard Mitchimer misused his chances and was only a new burden to them whose load he might have lightened. There was nothing for it but to leap on to the very benches and yell as long as your voice would hold out. After that the meeting was mere exuberance of mutual congratulations. Mr. Cullen was understood to be moving the usual vote of thanks, but even his vocal organs strove hard for little purpose. Daniel Dabbs had never made a speech in his life, but excitement drove him on the honourable post of seconder. The chairman endeavoured to make certain announcements. Then the assembly broke up. The street was invaded. Everybody wished to shake hands with Mutimer. Mr. Cullen tried to obtain Richard's attention to certain remarks of value. Failing, he went off with a scowl. Mr. Cowes attempted to buttonhole the popular hero. Finding Richard conversing with someone else at the same time, he turned away with a covert sneer. The former of the two worthies had desired to insist upon every member of the union becoming a teetotaler. The latter wished to say that he thought it would be well if a badge of temperance were henceforth worn by unionists. On turning away, each glanced at the clock and hurried his step. In a certain dark street, not very far from the lecture room, Mr. Cullen rose on tiptoe at the windows of a dull-lit public house. A unionist was standing at the bar. Mr. Cullen hurried on into a street yet darker. Again he tiptoed at a window. The glimpse reassured him. He passed quickly through the doorway, stepped to the bar, gave an order. Then he turned and, behold, on a seat just under the window sat Mr. Coase and a short pipe in his mouth, a smoking tumbler held on his knee. The supporters of total abstinence nodded to each other with a slight lack of spontaneity. Mr. Cullen, having secured his own tumbler, came by his comrade's side. Deal of fine talk to wind up with, he remarked tentatively. He means what he says, returned the other gravely. Oh, yes, Mr. Cullen hastened to admit. Mutimer means what he says. Only the way of saying it, I meant. I've got a bit of sore throat. So have I, after that there hot room. They nodded at each other sympathetically. Mr. Cullen filled a little black pipe. Got a light? Mr. Cowes offered the glowing bowl of his own clay. They put their noses together and blew a cloud. Of course, there's no saying what time will do, observed tall Mr. Cowes sententiously after a gulp of warm liquor. No more there is, assented short Cullen after half a wink. It's easy to promise. As easy as telling lies. Another silence. Don't suppose you and me'll get much of it, Mr. Cowes ventured to observe. About as much as you can put in your eye without winking, was the other's picturesque agreement. They talked till closing time. End of chapter 6 Recording by Farheen